Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 203, and we're going to be talking about the forecast for May of 2019. Uh, let's see, what is the date today? The date is April 29th, Monday, April 29th, 2019, starting at 1.25 p.m. Uh, joining me today is Austin Kopic and Kelly Surtees. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. All right. So um, let's see, other things. Oh, yeah. Uh, for more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. All right, guys, let's get into the forecast. Hey, it's been a month since I talked to you last. Um, how have you both been? Hectic as. Hectic. Kelly, you're getting ready to move to Europe and finalizing that? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that I was getting ready, but uh, we've just been dealing with uh, some home maintenance repairs going on. So I can't even say that we're ready for the move yet, but it's in the background and it does change everything when you know you've only got a couple more months in this particular country. Things like, are we going to use all of those spices or that oil or should we buy a smaller container? So even though you know we're not necessarily doing major packing yet, there's definitely been a head shift for sure. Right. That makes sense. Uh, and Austin, you are uh, just coming back from a pretty heavy trip. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, my grandma passed um, about a, a week and a half ago. Mm. And so, I, yeah, I, I flew out to Virginia where my mom's side of the family is from and spent time with family and had, you know, there was a really beautiful service and uh, it was it was the nicest possible version of that, right? You know, still still heavy. You know, it's it's funerals and the dead and family and all that. But um, really, uh, everything that you could ask for, um, it was good. I got to go visit my grandma's family graveyard way up in the mountains for the first time, and I saw, um, you know, saw and touched my great great my great grandparents graves my great great and my great 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 so oh my goodness yeah that's um they're all in like just a little little cemetery you know maybe 150 plots um just way up in the hills in a valley um you know not talk about not connecting with your ancestral line yeah yeah <laughs> are there any sort of transits going on for you with respect to all that Oh yeah, it makes. Um, uh, I, I've worked it out extensively. The non-extensive version is, you know, that Saturn South Node Pluto in Capricorn yeah. is um, very near one of my angles. Um, yeah. There, uh, Uranus is squaring the ruler of my fourth for family. Um, you know, just one little piece of the uh, the technical dissection. It's, I've been thinking a lot more about houses from houses. So oh, if, yeah. Yeah, if the fourth is mom, then the fourth from the fourth is your mom's mom. And that's where the Saturn South Node Pluto thing is for me. Mm. Interesting. Right? Yeah, and there's been a lot of stuff. And, you know, moving into a perfection where the ruler is Mars in the ninth and needing to fly across the country because something, you know, malefic happened. Right, which doesn't mean evil, right? Like it's not that it wasn't. It was again. It was a beautiful passing, but but you know, malefics are life. That's what a malefic does. Is it talks about oh, someone passes rather than someone's born, right? So you have a malefic in the ninth, and you fly for a funeral, right? And it's configured to the ruler of the eighth as well in my chart. So you know, it all makes sense. 
Um, so yeah, and I also started my classes and that's been a lot of fun. I'm really excited about both my year one and year two students. I'm really excited that so many people committed to a whole year. Um, I don't know, we've done two sessions with each so far and I'm, I'm super into it. Nice. That is good. And you also announced uh, an event you're doing later this year. Yeah. Uh, the the one and only Gordon White and I um, have been cooking this up for a couple months, and we finally announced uh, our North American event, uh, As Above, which will be in Portland on September 14th. And it is the companion to our Melbourne ever event last year, which was So Below. And so As Above is basically a... A, a dialogue and a discussion between Gordon and I, that's the first couple hours. And then the next, the next couple hours is dinner and drinks. And then we have the venue until about two in the morning. So it is sort of a combination. It's a combination of highly, uh, highly refined um, thinking and talking, hopefully, um, about astrology, magic, paradigms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and food truck based delicacies and open bar and occult warehouse party. It's sort of all of these things at the same time. Um, we're already, it was announced publicly, I think maybe nine days ago and we're over 85% sold out already. So, you know, don't dawdle. You can find more information uh, about it at asabove2019.com. And so that's pretty exciting. It's fun to, you know, unleash a master plan that you've been fiendish, fiendishly crafting for a while. And the reception has been really good. And it's going to yeah, be, it'll be, great. it'll be a night to remember. I, I hope to see you there. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so people can find out more information at asabove2019.com. It's 85% sold out. So by the time most people listen to this, it will be completely sold out. So get your tickets soon if you're interested in signing up. Speaking of sold out events, Norwalk is coming up, and Norwalk is completely sold out for the first time ever in history. And I actually got a, an email from the organizer, Laura, saying thanks because she thinks a lot of that's due to podcast listeners that are going to show up this year. Uh, so we are doing a podcast event as a pre-conference event at Norwalk uh, the day before it opens, just after the first set of pre-conferences. And we only have like 200 seats, so that actually might get sold out as well. So we wanted to give everyone a heads up. They should try to get there early if they plan on attending that. Uh, right, Kelly? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I think we're going, to, we, we don't have an official doors open time, do we? Should we say eight o'clock? Uh, it's start, the event is starting at 8.30 promptly, right? Basically, as soon as the Ascendant moves into Sagittarius. So we don't know what the door opening it is. It's going to be at least by 8.30, but probably by 7.30. But yeah, people should get there early in order to be sure they can get a seat and it's taking place what is the date again it's thursday may november 20 uh, may 23rd sorry okay in seattle at the norwalk <laughs> conference <laughs> in one of the big rooms i'm sure you'll be able to find it once you get there because a lot of people will be going there and it's a free event so just come and join us uh, if you're a fan of the podcast we're going to be doing a live q a and we're actually soliciting questions now if you'd like to submit a question ahead of time for our q a we're not going to be able to answer all of them, of course, but we'll answer as many of the more interesting ones as we can. So you can submit your question to us through sending it uh, through through Twitter. If you want to email me your question at astrologue at gmail.com, 
uh, yeah, or send them to Austin Kelly and they'll send them to us at some point as well. Yeah, you could probably send them to any of us and I guess we'll just create a Google Doc or something, Chris, and like we can review. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Q&A, I think one of you said that we've never done a Q&A, all three of us together, right? I don't I think, think we, have. we have. Like I know Austin was saying we we took a few questions after our live event at UAC, but that was just a few questions at the end. So I'm actually really excited for the three of us to to get into because the Q and A's are always great for provoking really good discussions, and not that we need a lot of help with that. But we'll have a little bit more room to you know roam in a live event, so that'll be fun. Yeah, definitely. So send us your questions about astrology in general. I mean, what other should we set topic? We'll we'll cover a wide range of topics, but should we give people any pointers about like what would make a good question? Um, it like, shouldn't be a question about just your chart, right? Yes, if it's, if it's, <laughs> if it's only a question that relates a to your chart. Yes, a, a technique about a, a a question about a technique or a question about something that might relate to you know more than just you is a really good question. Definitely. All right, cool. So that's going to be fun, and we look forward to seeing a lot of people at Norwac in general. Uh, Kelly, you're doing a post-conference, and I'm doing a post-conference. What's your post-conference on? My post-conference is on places of ease and pathways of frustrations, and it's about going deeper with natal aspects. Brilliant. And you still have space left there? It's not sold out yet? I don't think I am. So yes, if anyone's interested in that, I'd love to have you join us. And that's on Monday, the 27th of May. And what's yours called, Chris? Uh, mine is on synthesizing modern and ancient astrology and sort of providing a blueprint for starting to do that now that we have the revival of all these ancient traditions that are intermixing with all these modern ones in the present time. So yeah, that's my post-conference. Do you still have some space in yours or is it full? I have no idea. I assume it's full. <laughs> if they let you buy tickets and you want to buy tickets, then give it a shot. If they don't, yeah. then next time. All right. So that's Norwak. Look forward to seeing everyone at the end of the month. Um, other news and announcements in terms of conferences. Kelly, you said something came up about Soda. Oh, yeah. So the Soda Facebook page has made the official announcement that the 2019 Soda conference is cancelled due to the organizer Donovan Toen passing away late oh, last year. Right. So that was kind of expected, but obviously we hadn't had any official word. But just in the last couple of weeks, they did make it clear that there won't be a soda conference this year. Uh, plans for 2020 are still up in the air, so we we don't have confirmation on that as yet. But the family are still just dealing with with the the emotional side of everything that's been going on. So they weren't ready to commit to 2020 yet, but they did say that there won't be one for 2019. Okay. Um, and in terms of 2020, though, there is a big conference that's being planned that I just got some like front row front seat access to this week because the yeah. entire uh, board of the International Society for Astrological Research flew out here over the past week for board meetings and for conference planning. And they're planning to host a huge international conference here in Denver next in September of 2020. So uh, that's coming up. It's going to be really great. It looks like it's going to be a great conference with a ton of speakers flying in from all over the world. They just completed their first round of speaker selection for that in voting and picked their first 30 speakers. And uh, yeah, I think you and I got in, right, Kelly? Yeah, I was uh, really excited and quite surprised that I got in on the first go. So I'm thrilled. I'm so excited for such a big conference next year. And, and Chris, you're there as well. 
Yeah, I made it in on the traditional track. So thanks everybody who voted for me. Uh, it kind of sucked because the traditional track got packed with a ton of big speakers. It was like me, Demetra, Lee Lehman, Austin, Lisa, Michael Ofek, and like two other people. So it was like that was the the highest competition one, and only the top three could get in. So I think they're still going to do other rounds of um, things, other rounds of like speaker selection that's in the process of happening now. And they've already, I'm making arrangements with them, and they're going to give us a space to do a large free podcast event um, at this conference as a pre conference thing. So the three of us are going to be there for sure doing that. If you're, up for, if you're up for it, actually, I should have run that by you first. Probably. I'm like, oh, I love that, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I will be. What about you, Austin? Well, uh, I wasn't, so my talk wasn't selected. So I'm going to have to get over my feelings and, you know, which may involve bringing, you know, uh, terrible devastation to the lives of all of those who voted against me. That's well, where I'm at now. We'll see. It, it wasn't selected. Right. Wasn't selected yet. Wait yeah, I mean, there's the... still um, multiple rounds. I think. Well, I'm. Um, if anybody would like there to be any astrological magic content at the conference, mine is the only talk um, that was proposed that's actually on astrological magic. What was the title again? Uh, it's called. Uh, well, it's called calling the planets, and it's comparing um, the the way that uh, the verbal component of calling the planets in the Higramantia, in the Picatrix, and in Agrippa's four books of occult of philosophy, or three books. You and, and your po your poetic titles. What if people just misinterpreted it as like literally trying to call the planets, and that was the issue? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Crickets. Well, you know, if maybe maybe it's not for them then. Right. That could be the issue. It, All it, right. Well, it's it's pretty literal. You, but Chris, <laughs> uh, sorry, Austin, you would have been on the traditional track too then, right? Yes. Cuz that yeah. was a very hard track to select speakers from, I will say, right out of the gate. There was I wanted like all of them to speak, not all of them, but most of them to speak. Yeah, and that was what happened. And Lisa didn't make it in on that track, and Michael Ofek didn't make it in, and like one or two other people didn't. So Aww. don't feel bad, but there's still time. So we'll see what happens with. The so final I'll be thing. in good company when we have our loser party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it is going to be a good conference. So it's a long ways away right now, but I'm looking forward to it. And I've been doing interviews. I got to steal some of the ESR board members like Kenneth Miller and Sam Reynolds to do an interview that came out already this month on the Outer Planets. And then there's another interview I did with David Rayleigh, who's the vice president of ESAR, about his work in bringing modern Western astrology to China. And that's going to be one of the first episodes I release in May that's being edited right now. Fantastic. Interesting. I, yeah. I have to say I'm a little nervous because I did swing for the fence with my talk topic for ESAR in that I went for a talk on progressions and I had a random okay. thought, oh, I'm going to email Aaron, who's my publisher, and say, can we get the book out by then? Because then I can do a talk on it. You like, pretty much have to get the book out by then. And now now we have to. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that's, um, that's just really putting the pressure on. Good. I like that. And so, the theme of the conference is like the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, the great conjunction that's happening next year in 2020. And that's something you guys have been researching and talking about a lot recently as well, right? Totally. Yeah, I've, I've been, well, it's been part of my, uh, the year in reference to that has been part of my yearly for the last several years. 
Um, cause it's, it's, it's such an important framing device for looking at what's 2016. Like what's 2018, like what's 2021, like, right. There's the nature of the year inside itself, but then there's context. And that's our, I would say our, our best and clearest single, um, system, which gives us context. And I'm giving my delayed talk on the Jupiter Saturn cycle um, this coming Sunday, um, May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo. It was originally scheduled for um, the previous Sunday, but I ended up having to fly out and do family and funeral. So, And this will be the second time I've given the talk, so hopefully better. I think I learned a few things during the first one. Um, people can sign up for that on my website, which is austincopic.com. And um, even even if you can't make it live, um, y if you sign up, you will get a digital copy with the PowerPoint and my, you know, questionable voice and all that. So awesome. and that's and that's you know I don't have too much going on in May other than what I've already committed to: lots of teaching, lots of readings, giving that talk selling out as above and then the the venus in pisces series that i elected for sphere and sundry is due to launch on may 2nd um and so there's there's that as well and i'm i'm a fan i am the uh the primary beta tester for all of that stuff so <laughs> pleasing indeed awesome super exciting kelly did you do a jupiter saturn talk as well or something I did at the uh, Astrology University 2020 Summit, uh, okay. which was mid-April. I had talked a little bit about the Jupiter-Saturn cycle in my year ahead talk because I do think like you, Austin, it gives really good context. It sort of puts the whole Saturn, South Node, Pluto thing. It gives a framework for why that's absolutely relevant given the major change with Jupiter and Saturn. So yeah, that talk is now available as part of the Access All Areas Pass from the Astrology Summit um, via Astrology University. Um, but yeah, Austin, you totally have to come to the ESAR conference because it's likely that it'll be my book launch and you've been such a good supporter, aka kicking me up the proverbial to get that done. So <laughs> it wouldn't be a book launch party without you there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll be there. You and guys will be I, there. I, you um, know, I, I'm dramatizing my reaction to I not know. being selected in the first round. Well, also because Sphere and Sundry, I'm sure, will have a presence there with their beautiful wares. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Uh, there's not a whole lot of vending with Sphere and Sundry. No, that's true. Maybe. So, yeah. Okay. Right. That is up to uh, the proprietorist. Proprietress. <laughs> Although yeah, like, um, Sphere and Sundry will be vending for the first and only time so far at As Above. Yes. So little, little, little icing on an already delicious... Layer cake. Layer cake. One one uh, one one type of cake being me, the other Gordon. Kate being the icing. I don't know. <laughs> and so the, the question is, is, what really... kind of cake am I? Well, um, there'd be some chili in there for sure. Hmm. All right. But also some buttercream. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Can't, right. You can't you can't do cancer rising without a little buttercream. Oh my god, not at all. You, you know, cannot. And so this is sounding like the awkward combination I am in reality, chili, chili and buttercream. And buttercream, but, but that sums up you, Austin. Yeah, well, it's my job to figure out how to make that flavor profile work, I suppose. 
You're doing a great job. And I think we're <laughs> getting you. some confirmation here that uh, Sphere and Sundry will only be vending at As Above by special request. And that's it. Awesome. All right. Um, so I think that's all the news and announcements. We were going to do a few topics because uh, we got kind of a short time frame for today before we got to get into the forecast. Um, which one did you guys want to talk on first? One of them that I know, Kelly, you'd mentioned being a topic of interest was the episode I did in episode 201, where we talked about dating astrologers as being like a funny thing, since all three of us have different variations of that in common. Yeah. I don't know. I thought, I thought it was such a great um, topic. I listened to, I think I've listened to about the first half of that episode now. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed the discussion. I thought everybody made some beautiful points. Uh, some of the points that Eugenia was making around how she uses astrology very therapeutically. And then at the end of the day, she kind of likes to shut down from it, but her partner has a different approach. I really related to that too, because I find with my own work, I go through periods where I have, you know, really intense client consulting periods where at the end of the day, I almost can't read anything more in astrology because I'm deep in that um, more, I don't know, client consulting mindset. And then other periods where I'm researching or teaching where I'm, you know, reading all the books. Uh, but even though I did meet my partner at a conference at Denver 2008, uh he is no longer really super into astrology. So we do have a little bit of an imbalance where um, I obviously know a lot about astrology and he knows a little bit, but there is a bit of a gap between the two of us. So I thought some of the points you that were made in that podcast around, you know, when there is an imbalance of who knows what, like how you really hold that, because that's something that we do have to be really careful of around. Um, yeah, your partner Peter's primary thing is tarot, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, he's great with the tarot. Probably I mean, like so that, most super That's Scorpio something charts. at least. So it's not like he's not open to metaphysical stuff at all. He just does like a different thing as his primary interest. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the points that I think was made in the podcast was how important it was to have that shared kind of worldview or shared sort of orientation. And right. that's one thing I think for Peter and I, this is probably the first time that we've had that in our romantic relationship and it makes a huge difference. Okay. Um, so you had been in previous relationships with like non-astrologers while you were pursuing astrology as a career or at least as like a major interest in your life? Yes. And was that and tough or what? It's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, the very my first sort of serious boyfriend who was the one I was with when I first was studying astrology he was in the finance industry and, you know, much more of a dry personality type. So I didn't really get that sense of respect from him around the value of astrology. And I mean, that relationship didn't last. I'm sure that was part of it. And then, yeah, I had another partner in between who was very accepting of it, but not into it and wouldn't participate where Peter and I will often do things around wheel of the year, um, festivals and you know we have tarot card art and we have astrological planetary stuff sort of all around the house and some of it's his and some of it's mine so even though the specifics are a little different um that interest and that sort of understanding from that esoteric perspective is definitely shared yeah that really helps then um and then austin you your partner was already studying astrology before you guys met because I met. Didn't did I meet Caitlin before you did? You did. Okay, yeah, you met her I before I did. She was like studying at Kepler College. Um, 
so that was that your first relationship with another astrologer? No, no, I no. uh, I I dated people before they were into astrology. Okay, was I was always, you know when had you ever not? Um, before I was into astrology, you know, I um, I went so hard into astrology and made it such a focal point of my life so early, and it still is that if you're not really interested in astrology, I'm really boring to hang out with. Right. It's not that I, you know, it's not that I won't make an effort to have non-astrological conversation with people, but, you know, it's been at the center of my life for um, not quite, but almost 20 years. And so, you know, I think part of the way that worked is I wasn't very interested if you didn't think astrology was very interesting. Right. I mean, isn't that ultimately the issue with like astrologer dating a non-astrologer or in terms of attention is it's not that this it's not that the astrologer necessarily considers the non-astrologer uninteresting. It's almost like the reverse. It would look tremendously uninteresting or like you're not doing something worthwhile if you're devoting all your time to astrology if you didn't have any interest in it or any think it was a valid subject on some level. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's different when people have been together for a while and one of them gets bitten by the astrology bug. And, yeah. and then, you know, and that's, that's a thing to adapt to rather than, you know, uh, sort of just uh, presented at the very beginning and part of the dynamic from the very beginning. Um, you know, what I would say is that, you know, with Kate and I both being students of astrology from the, from before the beginning, I, it's helped in countless conversations and moments. Like, un, you know, uh, the more one understands themselves, the better a partner they are. Mm -hmm. The more you understand your partner, the better a partner you can be. And, you know, and that's natal, but it's also transit. Like, oh, you know, I'm mad about this. Oh, yeah, the moon is on my Mars by degree. Let me see how I feel in like three hours. You know, or let me come back to this and see if, you know, there's a similar level of heat, right? Or, you know, and and knowing your partner's transits, just simple moon stuff as well as the more sophisticated methods. Because um, people get into, um, I think people get into a mode where there's one thing that they're unhappy about or um, that's happening at a particular time or one thing that they, you know, absolutely love. And then they tend to imagine that that's the whole relationship. Well, I can't possibly live with this if this, if this is the way it's going to be. Whereas astrology shows you that, you know, that both you and your partner are in very specific phases at any given moment and that they're doing this part of their chart for, you know, this day, this month, this decade, and that you're doing this other part of your chart, you know, yeah. the, the chart is big enough that it takes a whole life or more to unpack in its totality um, and having a, a consistent reminder and timing tool for that keeps you from just focusing on, on, on this one thing and thinking that's all there is, which people get stuck in. Yeah, it definitely provides a really great context or framework for understanding and it can help with a little bit of compassion. And as you said, Austin, oh, yeah. it can dial down some of the reactiveness as well. Uh, have you guys had drawbacks though, or issues where you found found astrology was like not productive or was counterproductive in the relationship or created 
unique problems, let's say, that you wouldn't have if you were two non-astrologers? I don't think I've, I, 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 I don't think that's happened. Kelly? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for us will be that sometimes there'll be something going on where we're dealing with some drama or something together, not necessarily between us, but something we might be just dealing with because that's what we're dealing with at the time. And I'll sort of be like, oh, that's because this thing is doing that thing in my husband's chart or that's because this is happening to me. And it's like, oh, okay, we've just got to get through it. But I sometimes forget to tell him that and he'll find, he'll be like getting a lot more stressed out about it. I'm like, oh, I've got to tell you that it's just this thing and, you know, just let's just give it a couple of days and it's not going to be as rough as it seems right now. So, and that's just where each of us having a different connection to astrology comes in. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty mild. I mean, you get, you guys then have not had the joys of being in a relationship where you guys have completely different approaches to, let's say, house division or <laughs> sign rulership or like one of you is a Vedic astrologer and the other's like into Chinese astrology or something extreme like that. No. Those are some of the most hilarious relationship fights that you you have ever experienced and I feel a little bit bad if neither of you have never had to experience that. Have you experienced that, Chris? Um yeah, I, I was in a relationship once where the other person I was using whole sign houses and she one of the things she said was like she really just hated whole sign houses passionately <laughs> and she was uh, we had different languages, but one of the things she said was like whole sign houses is the devil uh, is one of the things that she said at one point in like an argument. And this was not a healthy relationship, so I'm not going to play this off as if it was a great thing to begin with. But you know, having astrologers having arguments about vastly differing approaches, like technical approaches, is not something that I've heard that's uncommon when it comes to astrologers sometimes dating. Because I've heard of like a traditional astrologer dating a modern astrologer or somebody that does Vedic and sidereal dating like a tropical astrologer. Because normally you would think if you're both astrologers, you're both coming at it from the same perspective and you have some shared worldview that creates a connection between you, which is true to some extent. But in fact, if there's major technical differences between you, then it's like your actual worldviews and perceptions of yourself and each other sometimes come into conflict in like hilarious ways. That you wouldn't anticipate until you're actually in that situation. Yeah, I I mean I sort of can imagine, but I also can't because I haven't been in it. But I'm like that would be they would be almost well. I'm like, is it more? Would it be more difficult to be in a relationship with someone who was in astrology but had a totally different technical basis to you than someone who just wasn't in astrology at all? Right. And that's actually a legitimate question because you do get you can get to that point given the relationship, depending on the relationship and depending on the, you know, temperament of the people involved. Yeah, super interesting. Anyway, good times. Um, so that was one topic that we thought about touching on in the pre-show chat. Other topics. Um, one of the things that came up is this article was being passed around about somebody in like Portland who was renting out a room and um, rejected a candidate because they were a Capricorn or something like that. Um, and it, which is funny, and that's the actual reaction that a lot of the astrologers have is just like that's dumb and kind of funny. But it was actually it got picked up by The Guardian and a bunch of other news sites, like respectable news sites, as an instance of people using astrology 
to discriminate or basically for discriminatory purposes. And that actually made me really nervous. And um, I had a stronger negative reaction to it of feeling like we needed to call that out publicly is like not really being cool on some level because I think it feeds into a false narrative that has become much more common over the past decade in skeptic circles where they're trying to take this line of argumentation that astrology is inherently discriminatory, that it's not just false, but it's false and it's discriminatory because it leads people to make prejudices or prejudgments against people before they've met them and therefore is evil in some way. Um, and little things like this, even though it's like stupid and whatever, is kind of funny, but it may have a deeper underlying sort of societal issue if things like that start adding up and people start actually thinking that astrology is used for for sort of prejudice. Yeah, it's it's I almost feel like when you hear these things, it just shows the lack of understanding about the complexity of astrology. It and it reminds me of the question that sometimes I'll get from students and sometimes even from clients who are newer to astrology where they sort of want to know like what sign should I be looking for to date from a relationship perspective and it's sort of like that's I can understand where that question comes from but it's the question itself is faulty because it you know there's so much more to it in the same way that I don't, I'm like I I'm honestly well Capricorn's pretty responsible like they seem like the kind of if you were just doing sun sign astrology they seem like a flatmate that would be relatively tidy and maybe pay the rent on time. So I'm not actually sure why you would reject them, but you know, they've obviously got some sort of understanding or bias, you know, maybe they dated a Capricorn they didn't like. So they just think all Capricorns are bad. And that frustrates me so much when people make those blanket statements. Well, one thing that was a little weird is it may not have been just a purely sun sign oriented thing because the actual like screenshot of the text message said something about this being like a mutable household where we're all mutable placements and we want the free flowing whatever nature that they're associating with that and they didn't want some stern Capricorn coming in and they said like doming the house or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so it might have actually been slightly more intermediate something astrology behind it and I don't know if that actually makes it better or worse because it still comes off as like saying that to a non-astrologer like one of the things it just comes off as kind of um tasteless at the very least. I don't know why do you guys both re laugh at it when you first hear about it? Like what's your initial reaction when hearing this story? Austin? Um well, like um, what? What is it, your it, response? My my initial response was was laughter. Um, let me. I, I'm just. I, like I can. Every I can analyze met, why I thought it was funny. The, the analysis did not come before the the reaction. Yeah, um, and I'm not uh, like attacking that or something. I'm just curious why every astrologer's response to it is laughing, and if we could articulate why that is for somebody that doesn't know. Why is? Yeah, can we put it into words? Why Why is that funny? <sighs> I don't know. Um, I I don't have a, an explanation for that. Doesn't uh, a clear explanation for that that would be um, sensible to all does not come to mind. Okay, <laughs> what what do you think, Kelly? <laughs> I mean, it just I think it's a simplistic view. To my mind, it seems like you've somebody's picked a random piece of information, like the sun is in Capricorn, and made a blanket judgment based on that, and. Okay. 
to my mind, when you're looking for a flatmate, there's a bunch of other criteria, but they've just projected stuff about Capricorns onto this person. And this person is probably so much more than just that and may have all sorts of other qualities and, you know, that could make them a great flatmate, but they didn't, I I think I also like you laugh, but also you feel a bit sad that people get blatantly rejected because of something that is important, but not the whole of who they are. And there's some discrimination there maybe. Sure. So then it leads to the broader question then of is astrology inherently discriminatory or is that like a misuse of astrology? And is that why it's funny? Because then we're just laughing at like, that's kind of a dumb use of astrology because it's actually much more complicated than that. And just to reject somebody based on their sun sign or something like that is so... That, well, let me just say that the the sim, the oversimplicity of it is part of the humor. Just like picking a sign, being like, "Yeah, fuck Gemini's," right? I, I don't know. There's just something funny about that. It's silly. Um, um, Shakira in the chat saying that the person yeah. she says the person actually made a really long and thought out response and apology about that. That was an interesting read. I've been wondering if those people understood like what was ha- they must have seen like all their media response to it. So I was curious. If it was an actual astrologer or what, could you share where that was? Because that's kind of interesting, and I'd be curious to read that. Well, so uh, to get to the the central point, right, which is the is astrology discriminatory? Um, in uh, uh, does if we take discrimination not uh, in the legal illegal sense, but in right. the, the proper meaning of the term. Does it does it allow a person to tell the difference between one thing and another, and then to choose between those things? Well, if it didn't do that, then there would be no point in studying it. Um, the you know the central supposition of electional astrology, for example, is that sometimes are more fortunate for some things. Um, the central idea behind synastry or the relationship between charts is that some uh, some configurations between charts facilitate harmony and growth more effectively than others, right? And um, if we were to take this, um, if we were to take this, you know, this, you know, no Capricorns need apply thing and, um, and develop it to the point of, you know, like full astrological technique, um, let's say, you know, it was like, oh, okay, I don't want somebody with a badly afflicted uh, second and fourth house um, because that's going to affect living situation um, and also may speak negatively to their ability to do their part in domestic labor as well as come up with the, you know, the rent money and their part of the internet bill. And if that can be seen in a chart, um, then, you know, and like is that then discriminatory or i mean it is discriminating it's choosing one person over another but those are all criteria those are all cri- astrological ways of addressing the criteria that would be immediately relevant to a living partner right so the question i think the the better phrasing of the question or another way of look at it would it be okay to do that if um, if you know astrology's full tools were brought to bear in a way that was most likely quite accurate, right? I mean, so the what you're bringing up then, or not what you're bringing up, but part of what I'm getting from what you're saying, or that brings me more to the crux of the underlying issue is that astrology sometimes 
is used, and part of the purpose is partially to try to use it to infer what will happen in the future before an action has actually been taken, or to infer what kind of ac actions a person might take. Yeah, or um, what kind of patterns a person um, uh, will tend to enact over time. Sure, but then the point still would be, or part of the crux, part of the issue would still be that if the person hasn't done that action yet, you're still making a sort of prejudgment ahead of time. And in some instances, you might be wrong that the person might not end up taking that specific action given a certain scenario, or the things that you're taking as indicators, as potentialities, may not end up manifesting in that precise way. And in some ways, you can't fully know until you're in the actual scenario uh, that you're talking about, right? Um, I mean, is every is every prediction that you've ever made or every assumption you've ever made about a person based on their chart always been correct? Well, no. And so, the, but the question then is, um, you know, uh, so whenever a person is say choosing a roommate. Um, the the whole game is predicting the future as best you can and picking, right? right? And so you're the goal is to discriminate between of the people who apply, uh, who will be the best roommate based on the tools that I have for seeing into their past in a way that would predict the future, as well as you know intuition about a person, you know little cues, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody who's interviewing roommates is already in that game. And so if you have a good track record um, with astrology, um, you, um, you know, you might not talk about it, but you probably would do that. Would you not look at the at the chart of a potential roommate? I mean, there's a couple of points here, like Austin, what you're offering, what you, well, not, what, not so what you're offering, but what you're sort of suggesting is a more nuanced and deep work of astrology. I think one of the reasons that I had sort of that funny reaction is just to make an assumption like that based off a sun sign placement is you, you don't even know what's going on with the second or the fourth or what have you. So it's maybe an, an inaccurate or ineffective or superficial use of astrology, which I don't know. It, it annoys me, but I also sort of, you do see it all the time. Um, and then I think Absolutely. There is the part of astrology is a tool to help you choose. And of course, you're going to want to choose the best for you in a situation. It's you can't always get a perfect solution, though. So sometimes you are going to have to deal with a flatmate or a person that isn't ideal, doesn't have the best chart. And there can be some negotiation skills or some compromise skills, you know, th there can be some sort of learning or growth that happens by being in a situation that isn't as ideal as you might like it to be. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I understand your general point and that's actually a good point, Austin. And it's what a uh, point Lisa had made as well, which is like astrology is one of many different like heuristic um, devices that people use in order to make uh, assessments about things, especially if you're doing something like that, which is sort of like an interview about, do I want to live with this person, or or you know have them in my home or what have you. Um, I guess it's just there's some sort of balance there that's not well defined in the astrological community today of like what's an okay application of astrology versus like when would things be going too far, 
Uh, so a lot of people, I haven't watched this yet, but a lot of people have been citing some television episode about like a sci-fi television show that apparently did something on this recently where they had a show about like a whole society that used astrology as part of like creating different caste systems or different things like that. And the sort of like extreme scenario of what if society fully embraced it and used it to categorize people in ways that were maybe like overly restrictive or not healthy. Um, and I guess that's part of the underlying question as well as just at what point would it be like a misapplication which would verge on something that we might more closely associate with prejudice or racism in a negative sense versus what is the constructive positive application of it? Well, I'm not I, saying there's a good answer I mean, to that. One now, very just... simple um, uh, answer to that is it should never. There should never be legislation that privileges or disadvantages people based on their charts. Very on a very simple level, like that. That should absolutely never happen. So people, by law at least, should never. It should never be put into law. So then that that raises the question then that was raised in the Guardian article, which is that technically something like this. Is not illegal right now. Like filtering somebody based on their birth chart is not something that's covered by like anti-discrimination laws. But then, should it be, or could it be at some point? Because then we get in, into the legal angle as well. Anyway, I'm not saying there's any good answers to this, but mainly just raising the discussion. Since one of the things, one of the feelings I have is this is not going to be the last time we see headlines stating. Astrology used for discriminatory purposes, and some newspapers and things like that. This saying, you know, aha, like this confirms that astrology is primarily just a form of prejudice. And here's an example of it. Um, because I've seen this argument, it's a relatively new argument, but it's one that skeptics have been getting more loud about, I've noticed over the past decade or so. So that I think it's going to be like one of the sort of angles that they use in order to convince people that. Not just that astrology is wrong, but also that it's somehow evil in some way, which I don't personally believe. But I'm interested in how astrologers would respond to, and if they can provide a sufficient, compelling response to accusations like that. All right. Well, uh, that's all I've got on that topic. There's a lot of stuff coming in in the chat, but. So, were there any other topics that we meant to touch on as pre-show stuff before we get into the? Uh, forecast. Let's see. Do we have anything else? Do, 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 do. Well, I don't think we have time for anything else anyway. I mean, we're forty-five minutes in. So we've yeah, I feel an... like we probably should get to the forecast itself, just so we can take our time with that. Take a leisurely okay. stroll through the sun's time in Taurus. <laughs> through the Taurus time, and then we'll speed up at the end for Gemini. We will have to go much faster starting May 21st. <laughs> All right. So let's get into the forecast for the month of May then. Um, let me pull up the solar fire charts so that we can see the actual astrology for the month. Uh, here we go. Can you guys see that? We can now. Loud and clear. Brilliant. So this is the chart for set for May 1st, 2019, sometime in the afternoon here in Denver. Uh, it looks like we start out the month with Mars in Gemini, where it's going to spend a decent portion of the month before eventually moving into Cancer. The Sun is, of course, moving through Taurus most of the month of May. 
Saturn has recently stationed retrograde in Capricorn, as has Pluto, and Jupiter is not long ago stationed retrograde in Sagittarius. Uh, so, what are the highlights? Do we want to go by like chronologically, or in terms of like the highlights for the month? Uh, I'm easy. Let's go. Let's go. Austin? Let's go chronologically. Okay. Keep let's, us on let, track. Let's stroll. Okay. <laughs> Take it all in. So I see that Mercury starts off in Aries, but it's moving very fast at this point, and it's not going to spend super long in that sign. And it looks like we have a new moon that takes place just a few days into the month in Taurus, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, on May 4th. Saturday, May 4th. May 4th. Okay. So new moon in Taurus at 14 degrees of Taurus. Um, this is our first new moon, I think, since Uranus has moved into Taurus. So that's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Um, any other comments about this new moon? For sure. Do you want to start, Austin? Sure. I mean, like any new moon, you know, which is the joining of the sun and moon in a particular sign in place, you know, it recenters things. You know, the new moon is the time to, you know, take a do that slow do that pivot between letting go of what you've been doing and picking back up what you're gonna or picking up what you need to be ready for in the next cycle. You know, it's an adjustment period. It's a transition period. It's it's an end beginning, and so here we're recentering in Taurus, right? And in the very in the dead center of Taurus, mm. which one might argue is the Tauruciest part of Taurus. <laughs> and although you know Mercury and Venus are in Aries, and you know Venus being the ruler of Taurus. Um, is of special importance. This gives it this gives us a little bit more fire, right? Than 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 like a raw yeah. Taurus archetype. It's still you know it's it it's still that uh, there's still a, a focus when you're dealing with Taurus with pacing and making sure that your recovery is equal to your efforts, right? You know Aries is sprinting where you go as fast as you can and you worry about recovery later. Um, but Taurus always comes after Aries, right? And you can't sprint through a whole season. And even though there's still a little little bit of speed put on this first part of May with the planets in Aries and the Mars in Gemini, Taurus is as the the new moon in Taurus is certainly a a reminder to check your pace and to make sure that you won't, you know, that you're again, your leisure recovery uh, has a has a, a thoughtful relationship to your exertion. Yeah, that's really well put, Austin. Thank you. And I had uh, focused in as well, like the, the new moon in Taurus ruled by Venus in Aries. So there is some some contrast or tension between the go slow, take your time, breathe it out Taurus versus Venus in Aries, which is is quite fast paced. Although at the time of the new moon, Venus is moving into a square with Saturn in Capricorn. So I thought that was a really nice combination around this new moon prompting may maybe fresh effort or renewed effort Venus in Aries towards a longer term project or goal as represented by the Saturn in Capricorn. And it may be that this new moon sort of marks the realization that an adjustment is required because I always find a square aspect tends to indicate where there's some tension where we can't quite keep going as we are, we need to tweak things or we need to just refine either what we're doing or how we're going about what we're trying to achieve. And so 
it's not quite as simple, I think, as you were saying too, Austin. It's not just our, you know, you can have the new moon in Taurus with Venus in Pisces or Venus in Virgo, and it's going to have a totally different tone. So there is still some activity, but I think that idea of of measuring the effort, but also thinking about it more of a marathon rather than a sprint, which we get from the Taurus energy and Venus being an aspect to Saturn. Yeah, I think the Venus-Saturn square is a really important point. You know, that that uh, the Venus-Saturn square may indicate that there is a need to do to do another little push, another little sprint, mm. um, but against the background of pacing, right? Like, pacing. yeah, I need to sprint. Yeah. I need to like push a little bit more here, but that's not what I'm doing for the next several weeks. That's something I need to do. Right to mm-hmm. to finish up a lot of last month's stuff, or finish up things that were um, that are that still need that need just that little bit more to get across the finish line. One of the things uh, that's interesting about this, since this is the first new moon in Taurus since Uranus went into this sign, is sometimes you have the question about so so Uranus has gone into a new, for example, whole sign house for everybody and everybody's chart. And for some people, you'll start seeing changes in that house sooner, and for other people, it might be later, depending on if they have any fixed sign placements uh, earlier in the sign or later in the sign that are going to get hit by Uranus exactly at some point. Uh, But for some people with this new moon taking place, or this being the first new moon in this sign since Uranus is ingressed, I think we're going to start to see some new developments and some people sort of laying the, the seeds for some of the changes indicated by Uranus really starting to grow after this point um, compared to what the past month or two that Uranus has been in that sign. So a new beginning, but specifically tied in with some of the um, disruptions and the detours indicated by Uranus now moving through that sign over the course of the next decade. Yeah. And that's really doubled down on by what happens over the ensuing days because not very long, I believe it's on Monday the 6th, Mercury moves into Taurus and spends the next several days in conjunction with Uranus, right? And so I think part of what you're going to see there is one, you know, just the standard um, uh, disruptions and revelations um, coming in on a mercurial level. Like that's new thinking. It's also um, disruptive for communications, blah, 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 all that, you know, all that standard stuff. But it's also bringing the mind. Or bringing the the intellective mind to thinking about the Uranus and Taurus stuff that's already happened over the last month and a half, um, which is going to help bring to fruition some of those, you know, some of those mutations which are planted but pending. And then the week afterwards, Venus will do the same and could join Uranus. So we have Mercury and Venus in a sense playing catch up with the Sun and hitting Uranus, you know, uh, after the Sun. Um, and that'll that'll continue to develop. Um, that'll continue to develop whatever those Uranian uh, events, signatures, significations, mutations were planted by the new moon in Taurus. Right. Yeah, I love that because then eventually Venus ingresses and goes in there and conjoins Uranus as well around the time of the full moon in Scorpio later in the month. Yeah. So it's really interesting because we we always get this once a year where it's like the sun goes through Taurus and then Mercury goes through around the same time and then Venus eventually catches up or goes through within a month or two of that as well. And it's just sort of a regular recurring thing. Uh, but we have this tonal shift now that's happening for the first time 
in any of our lifetimes where we have this other like outer planet sitting in that sign uh, sort of disrupting the normal flow of that or at least causing a, a tonal shift in what it's like for each of those planets to go through that sign in some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Taurus is different territory for the next while. And both of you are doing like consultations frequently still. Are you already seeing some of the shift come up in clients' charts with Uranus going through Taurus? Yeah, I would say that that is number two for the uh, Uranus's shift is the number two culprit for stuff worth talking about. The main thing is that that South Node Saturn Pluto, like that, yeah. it's just like, you know, uh, maybe two thirds of the consultations I've done this year. That's that what the person, what the client wants to talk about is anchored to Saturn South Node Pluto. But number two, Uranus. Okay. What have you seen, Kelly? Yeah, definitely seeing those two themes come through for sure. And and I'm just thinking, and then it's sort of the nuance, the individual nuances about, you know, what topics or what areas of life, but also what internal landscape the individual is meeting those transits with, depending on some of their progressed placements and cycles. So uh, it is that they are the big themes transit wise of the year the south node saturn pluto uranus into taurus um there i have had some clients this year who are dealing with the neptune in pisces piece so for people who've got important chart factors and and maybe you know that i don't know where i don't i don't i don't necessarily quite think about it in a numbered way as you have austin but they are definitely definitely the themes the um i mean <laughs> I was joking with a student last week, they were sort of asking, you know, how do you move through the ephemeris so quickly? And I sort of um, was just saying, you know, because I'm in it every day and then because this Saturn station, you know, I'm like, I've got the dates of Saturn at 20 degrees Capricorn memorized because I've been repeating them in client sessions um, for the last sort of six to nine months to clients who have, you know, planets or angle points, chart factors around that 20 degrees of, of any of the cardinal signs. It's like, okay. We're doing the Saturn dance and these are the dates and this is, you know, this is the territory. Right. And you mentioned the ephemeris, which is funny because that was the other story that we forgot that we skipped over at least. But now that that makes me realize that story must have been like particularly triggering for you, Kelly. And like the question <laughs> of whether whether like familiarity, let's say, with an ephemeris is a, a necessary prerequisite to be an astrologer is the broader question. I mean, I just re one thought I had as we were once we started recording live. Clearly, our ongoing discussions on the podcast about how important this book is and why everyone right. should have one. We're just not saying that often enough or loud enough. That's what I've taken from this: is that, that I, I need to say away? that okay. more. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe not everyone listens to, to the podcast. I don't know. Um, I mean, that is a possibility. So, and I, I don't want to keep like having to play devil's advocate, but for the sake of playing devil's advocate, uh, I wanted to say that what if we're in a period where we're not in the same way that over the past two decades, we've moved into a period where knowing how to calculate a chart by hand, for example, is not a necessary prerequisite to, to be or to call yourself an astrologer, have we actually reached a point where even knowledge of an ephemeris, while useful and something that we love clearly um, and think is like a very useful tool, maybe it's not necessarily a prerequisite in this day and age where everybody is just calculating charts 
you know, on websites or with apps or what have you? Well, so I think that's a great question. And I think that what is important is that you should know what the planets are doing and what they plan on doing. And in ephemerides is, uh, or in ephemeris, is a way of knowing that. You should have knowledge, right? Like Planet Watcher gives a person knowledge of where the planets are. It's a, it's a, um, it's a digital visual ephemeris, um, mm. but it's an ephemeris. Um, and I, I, um, I, you know, I would prefer people know that word, but um, if I have to choose, I would much, I would, I would definitely prefer they have the knowledge of what the planets are doing and what they're going to do. Um, and whatever particular uh, tool they are using to obtain that knowledge is way less important to me than if they have that knowledge, because that's what we need as astrologers. Right. I mean, because SolarFire, for example, or Astro.com is an ephemeris, and it's based on it's based on the Swiss ephemeris. It shows planetary positions, and you can look up where they were in the past and where they will be in the future. So then. Are we at a stage then where that's sufficient because you're basically using a computerized ephemeris that shows it to you in segments or that you can animate versus just having it in book form? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I I'm still, okay I with still that. Think I, I don't think that um, a list is superior to an animatable, clickable uh, visual display. The visual display. Um, that you know, a visual display like Planet Watcher or like you can animate a chart in Solar Fire lets you see everything at once and lets you see rates of relative movement. I would say that that is when, when possible, when you have that, um, that's um, a, a that's a tool that gives you more information. It's a superior form of arranging the information, but you don't always have that uh, you know handy. And so having it in book form is super handy too. Sure. Yeah, that's a beautiful point, Austin. Uh, and I agree with you. I think as long as people understand the way the planet cycle works, that it can be at one degree today and it can be back there again three months later or six months later, uh, that's that's really critical. And if you have access to software that is going to animate that for you and you've got the patience and you take the time to go through it day by day or week by week, depending on which planet you're looking at, you will get the same information for sure. Um, yeah. Do you want to defend though the pro ephemeris position, Kelly? I mean, Kelly? I I know that my preference for a book ephemeris is partly a personal thing in that I'm a massive paper person and mm. I like to feel something in my hand. I like to use a pen on a piece of paper. Uh and so that's that's how I like to learn. I do like a little bit of the hands-on manual. Um I, from a teaching perspective, I have found that students who take the time to work through the paper ephemeris, they can sort of plot or follow the the planet's pathway in a way that's, you know, there's a clarity to it. But I also know that some learners are much more visual and they would definitely prefer to see the diagram wheel um, or even to see, you know, those transit map grid things. Uh, but look, I mean, I've talked about, I think I'm on my third version of the um, the 21st century ephemeris right now. So I do, but, but I, I completely acknowledge it's my personal preference. Um, but I do recommend it. I think there's a lot you can get from it. Um, and you know, when I teach progressions, it's a really great tool 
Um, and I encourage students, whether they buy the book or, you know, you don't have to spend money on it because the Swiss Ephemeris is available free online. You can just Google Swiss Ephemeris and the year that you need, whether it's 2019, 2020, and you can just print off six sheets and have your Ephemeris. So the information is definitely, definitely there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do favor the paper, but I acknowledge that that's partly personal preference. Sure, sure. I mean, there's something about being able to like open a book and see a hundred years at a glance of planetary movements that's kind of useful. Uh, not a requirement, but it's certainly a different perspective on the planetary movements and maybe gives you more insight into them than you might have otherwise. But um, yeah. Well, uh, let me, I'll, I'll throw a point out for defending the paper ephemeris. Um, if you're going to be a bill yourself as a professional astrologer, and there, the implication is that you are an expert, it's not just that you know something about astrology. Many people know something. Um, mm -hmm. Then, you know, have, <clears throat> being knowing what a printed ephemeris is and being able to use it, if um, you know, if that is where the information is available and not other places. That is, I would, I would, I would set that as a bare minimum requirement. That's a very low bar. It is a low bar. That's true. Um, I guess when the story came up, and I don't want to get too much into the story at itself. I just part of me felt a little defensive over the person because I wasn't sure if we'd entered an era where maybe that's not in the same way that knowing what a table of houses is is not a requirement for being an astrologer. Knowing how to calculate a chart is not a requirement for being an astrologer at this point. Like Astronomically, literally knowing the astronomy underlying what you're doing, because astrology is primarily an interpretive art, and our primary litmus test for an astrologer is, can they interpret a chart effectively? I think, it, you know, I think we would all agree, maybe above anything else, right? Mm -hmm. I, I would say? agree with would you that, agree Kelly. With Absolutely. Yeah. You have to interpret. I mean, when I'm teaching my students, I always say the process to get to a, a chart interpretation, you first have to gather some data. You have to gather, you know, what is in the birth chart, this planetary placement or this aspect or this planetary condition. Then you have to kind of synthesize or order the data in the context of this chart. It's a night chart. The stuff going on with the moon is more important than maybe the stuff going on with the sun. Although maybe it's, a, so you have to you, you do have to look, do a little bit of data management before you get to the interpretive piece. Mm -hmm. The bulk of our work as astrologers is interpretation. That's where, we, that's where we do the heavy lifting. We translate the language of the sky into something accessible uh, for people who may not be studied uh, in this form. So it is interpretive, but to do good interpretations, you have to do some good data wrangling beforehand, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sure. I guess the question is just at this point, what's the bare minimum in terms of data wrangling that you should be able to do beyond? Because mm. that, that was one of the debates I saw some of the older astrologers having over the past 20 years, especially like 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Like in Holden's book, he has this offhand comment where he talks about how most astrologers have just become like advanced computer users at this point because all you mm -hmm. need to know to calculate a chart is just how to enter the birth data and then it calculates it for you and you don't need to know the underlying astronomy behind the chart. Um, but it just raises a really interesting issue and that's something that I think about that comes up in instances like this is just the broader debate that's like this eternal debate within the astrological community which is what 
what uh, what are the criteria for being able to call yourself an astrologer? And because of the lack of standardized testing or certification in the field, that's been a debate for like decades at this point because there's no clear answer to that question necessarily. Well, we can all give our own answers, but the thing is, everyone is doing. Everyone defines that for themselves. I guess it's a self-defined or self-regulated thing. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that there's no answer, but many people have different answers and and define that in different ways to themselves. Some people, for example, say you have to have certification from a organization or from a school, for example. Uh, do, do any of you guys have? Did you get certification? Yeah. Nope. What, I ticked what, all the boxes. <laughs> what did you get? I, I'm certified by the FAA in Australia. Okay. I even ta- calculated charts by hand, but that's also partly my age because I didn't have a computer when I first started studying astrology. So, uh, and be- partly that's my age, but also the fact that I'm a tech idiot and um, I'm just not, I would not have been an early adopter. I, computers existed, but I wouldn't have had one. Uh, okay. And yeah, so yeah, I have the FAA uh, practitioner level certification. It's It's comparable. I I mean I I don't want to compare it actually to the training centers offered offered in America. There are three very comprehensive comprehensive essays, and then there is a mathematics calculation exam that you have to pass. Yeah, I mean that's probably comparable to like the NCGR certification or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do you guys have any certification or more like self taught? So, which I know many people are. I, I was you know I so I said nope, but then I guess I do have. Um, I, I did get some certification through Freedom Cole's class for um, uh, as, as far as that particular lineage in school goes, being officially a GOTC. Um, so I guess I do have that. Uh, I didn't really think about that, but no, I, and that was that was just sort of um, you know a, a nice side effect of me studying things um, in a more formal context. But no, I, I didn't go through a certification program. Um, it was self-study, and then Project Hindsight material had a huge impact on me, and um, but I, I haven't gone through um, a program. I, I, and I also think if when we're talking about certification, there's uh, everybody who teaches, um, if they if they're not just you know doing classes like, yeah, I'll teach you how to do perfections or yeah, I'll teach you, you know, let's talk about synodic cycles or whatever it is. Um, If there's a teaching program that offers um, a stamp of approval at the end, then there are are always standards or one good Lord, I hope there are always standards, right? Um, If you were, you know, so Kelly, if if you were asked um, whether you would um, publicly rubber stamp or maybe like signet ring stamp, you know, cooler stamp. Someone is like, this person is ready to be a professional. Like you would be like, okay, well, they definitely need to know this, 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 and this. Um, I would feel the same. I'm sure Chris would feel the same. And I think this is, is, certification is interesting because it ties into questions of lineage, right? Because a good lineage always has certification. And that's why Mm. it's, that's why it's useful to study with somebody who's let's say four generations down because you know there's been a quality control and it wasn't just like four generations of people that kind of knew each other, right? You're assuming that grandma, uh, you know, 
great grandma in that tradition made sure that grandma knew you know knew her shit and the grandma made sure mom knew her shit and then mom made sure you knew your shit you know and so there is the institutional certification issue in question but then there's also that within lineages and can i have y'all's permission to go on a two-minute rant from here i know i've been talking i've got a rant oh my- i've got uh, run as long as just keep in mind that we have 45 minutes left before we're at two hours. We're at an hour and 15 right now. Okay. Yeah. This is. I'd love to hear your rant, Austin. As yeah, long as, yeah. Okay. And I, we'll this just... is, it's a relevant rant. It's not about how I hated the tacos I got the other day. Um, <laughs> so, although they were decidedly mediocre. Um, so, I've just been thinking a lot about lineage. I was doing a reading um, for a client the other day. Um, and I'll use um, my my Hellenistic and my modern and my Vedic um, in readings. I use all my tools. Um, some conversations are, you know, all one, all the other. But um, and, you know, I just mentioned something about, well, and, you know, in the tradition of Vedic that I've been studying and I can't speak for everything that's happened on that subcontinent, you know, we do this. Um, and he was just like, man, um, lineage sure is nice. Like being able to learn from people rather than having to start from scratch. He's like, Oh, I wish we had that with some of these Western traditions. Um, and I was like, yeah, that would be nice. But one part of my Jupiterian reframe reflex on that was that with this, uh, you know, volcanic eruption slash recovery of all these cortex and the entire history of the astrology that went West (laughs) <laughs> from Alexandria, um, where I, I feel like we're in a we're in a uh, an era where people will look back and see a number of lineages beginning now. Like there are people who are teaching and studying now who will pass on, and their students will pass on. And in you know 150 years, people look back at this time as when lineages began, and that that's um, that's both exciting and I think a more positive way to look at. We don't have any of that, and it sucks. <laughs> and so that's my that's my point. Yeah, it's a it's a nexus where a bunch of the older lineages are being restarted again, and then reconnected with a lot of the living modern lineages. Because actually, I mean, to be honest, though, the modern lineages exist. Like, if you look at any, that's fair. Mm-hmm. You know, modern astrologer who's alive and practicing today, they have both books as well as often like teachers that they learned from and even if they didn't take a lot from that person or that singular book if they didn't even if they didn't emulate that system completely they were still influenced by it in some way yeah well and let me let me clarify this conversation arose when we were talking about traditional um uh traditional western and hellenistic and so you know we don't have uh gener- we don't have like three generations of practitioners who've been zodiacal releasing for all the mm. 20th century you know we don't have any uh we don't have any grandparents to learn from with that you know that's been yeah. okay so valens says this let's all experiment and compare findings or another one that's interesting is the horary lineage that was the the mm-hmm. traditional horary lineage that was revived in the UK in the 1980s when yeah. because there was an original core group of that that was like Olivia Barclay pushes to get Lily reprinted in the mid 1980s mm-hmm. it's reprinted and she starts teaching the qualifying horary practitioners course or whatever it's called the QHP and she has a number of students and like that first generation of students included like um 
John Frawley. Yes. Uh, Deborah Holding. Yes. Um, Lee Lehman. And like one or two, actually several others, but those are just like, let's say, three examples. And then, for example, from those, you have sort of students like Lee taught, for example, um, what's his name? Kevin Burke. So Kevin Burke mm -hmm. would then represent another generation that came after third generation. And then Kevin Burke has gone on to have students, or you have, you know, Deb Holding, and she's taught students like, or, or no, actually backing up, um, Christopher Warnock was a student of Lee Lehman. So that's he's like a third generation, then he's gone on to teach other students and so on and so forth. So even in the recent traditional revival, which is relatively sudden, we're already seeing like second and third and fourth generation students coming out of that in terms of those specific lineages. Yeah. And that's again, mm -hmm. it's starting up again. Um, but and one thing I will say though, and this is not um an insult to any of the people mentioned or in parallel situations, um, but there there has been, while this stuff has been passing, huge new material translated. The the beginning point wasn't um a full astrology where you know where where there was like a full traditional natal a full traditional horary a full traditional lectional a full traditional magic and there was a whole system and that was passed on it was like let's do you know like extracting um extracting horary from lily and then passing that on but then you know for a lot of the people that you mentioned they found or added something completely new that wasn't part of the lineage. And so part of what I'm thinking, you know, part of, I think, the a lineage, uh, part of what makes something solid and it's passing through the years is that it's relatively complete. Um, and that has not been possible until very recently. Mm. And yeah, so that, that just, just, a, just a, you know, a side point. Definitely. All right. Um, These are wonderful side points. I can't remember where we were in the month of May. Yep. I know. This is really tough because I love you guys. I love talking about just our I random know, astrological like, conference. Co we've uh, got to hold it for our late night chats at Norway. Here's the transition. And, and Taurus is the fixed earth sign. And so therefore okay. has uh, always speaks to what endures over time. And it's Venus ruled. And so we're talking about what is a value that's passed down and maintained over time. And so we were just giving you a very extended and detailed example of how Torian dynamics works. Stuff's in Taurus exactly. this month. Think about it. I, lo I love it. Nice segue. All right. Um, new moon in Taurus. We have covered that. Mercury goes into Taurus May 6th. Um, I'm not seeing anything else. The moon keeps moving through. Mars opposes Jupiter at one point around May 6th, it looks like. So Jupiter is getting that opposition from 23 Sag from Mars at 23 uh, Gemini. Yeah, what do you guys think about that? Um, I think Jupiter is kind of, you know, it's been so well placed since it moved into Sagittarius, but now we're starting to run into some problems and see some of the, whatever the drawbacks are of Jupiter and Sagittarius now that it's not only stationed retrograde, but it's getting that strong opposition from. Um, from Mars at the same time. This is kind of like the not worst case scenario for Jupiter, but certainly it's not all like, you know, running through fields of roses at this point. Yeah, I think this one is, <laughs> I think, the Mars Jupiter opposition. Bad for Jupiter, good for Mars. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Jupiter's balloon gets a bit popped, but Mars gets amplified in some way. 
or encouraged? I always think about when I see an opposition like this to Jupiter with, you know, high energy Mars and obviously over the top Jupiter, it makes me think of an elastic band, which is just getting stretched and stretched and stretched. And that idea of going over the top, doing too much, being pulled in different directions at the same time, there's obviously some tension here because it is an opposition. So I think particularly if the mutable signs are strong in your chart or those degrees, 23 Gemini, 23 Sag are strong in your chart. There is definitely a little bit of volatility here. I think it's workable or, you know, not that it definitely has to have a positive outcome. Something has to cut or pop here. You know, you, the elastic kind of goes too far, I think, at this point. I I think it's totally workable. Um, it, well, so two, so here's a here's a good and a bad. Uh, for in my um, from my perspective, from Mars Jupiter opposition, where it is um, good, it can be super. You can you can have that martial fire backed by Jupiterian enthusiasm, right? Like just getting a lot done, um, keeping high spirits um, as you overcome you know little challenges, this and that. You know the negative part, the negative side of the combination of Mars and Jupiter. Um, you know, is the is the crusader, right? Is the um, is the the adding the the priestly authority to the martial destructiveness um, and getting up on your high horse, right? There's definitely some high horse possibilities mm-hmm. there um, with Sagittarius, the twins riding the high horse, right? <laughs> um, and, Good imagery, but you know, if, if that's direct, and this is uh, as a general rule with Mars. It's always better if it's not social. Direct Mars to accomplishing tasks, not accomplishing yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying that, Austin, I'm like, this would be really good for someone who had a big writing project or a big research project, something where you could, you know, thinking specifically about a project for Mars in Gemini, something to do with words or ideas that was a little bit self-contained or solo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you just, and Jupiter can be used as an asset to Mars in this case, and will, um, you know, will help uplift Mars a little bit for the purely Jupiterian peace and justice work. It's, um, it's a real impediment. There is a little bit of sort of disagreement that comes out of this aspect, I think, or a quality of disagreement or discord. Yeah. And it doesn't help that Venus is tightly square Saturn while this aspect climaxes, which is also not good for social accord um, and for moods in general. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like what happens when the proselytizing of Jupiter and Sagittarius runs into heavy opposition from a disagreeing party or a party that's naturally... Um, running at cross purposes to that, yeah. Well, and just the everybody's in a bad mood, generally speaking, right? And and you have that. Um, and uh, Brittany Ostland in the chat notes that yeah, the moon, moon crosses twenty six Taurus at the same, pretty much the, almost the same time as the aspect. Yeah, so a little kaput algol action. Don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. Yeah, I mean, I do find watching. Planets going over our goal is just a good clue for when there's a heightened energy about stress or anxiety or even inner mental anguish. So, yeah, just yeah. Well, you know, one just uh, on that note, one thing I find that's really interesting, or one thing that I find really interesting about watching planets go over fixed stars, 
in contrast to planets aspect each other is when planets make tight and strong aspects to each other, it's always there. Whereas one thing I find with fixed stars is if you go in the direction that that fixed star indicates, like if you go towards the, you know, freaking out um, direction that Algol indicates, Algol will take you all the way home. But if you don't take a step in that direction, I don't see a pull, see or feel a pull towards it. The fixed stars seem to be very on and off depending on whether you're you're moving with them or not. Whereas I see the planets as a much as ha- the planets aspects to the planets as having a much more consistent gravity. Definitely. Um, all right, so let's keep let's keep zooming through here. So that's the Mars Jupiter opposition. Oh, yeah. Kelly. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I'm really excited to get to May 15 with the mid-month mood shift. Yeah, so and so pretty much at the same time, as was mentioned, Venus has to square south node Saturn-Pluto, which is, you know, which is, is hard on the heart. Um, you know, it's dealing with, it's dealing, you know, with Venus, you're dealing with the, some of the relational consequences of whatever that south node Saturn-Pluto thing is doing. Generally not uplifting, but also and very do guys, temporary. Do you guys have a few keywords for Pluto that you come back to? Just like not to keep bringing us back to other far afield topics, but the previous episode that we did before I did before this one was Kenneth Miller talking about the history of Pluto and how astrologers didn't seem to be on the same page about it for decades after its discovery, and then suddenly were but some issues surrounding that where they seem to be drawing in like Scorpio and eighth house significations for Pluto and the question of um you know is our understanding and definition of Pluto as as clear as it is for Uranus and Neptune for example um I don't think Pluto is as uh I see uh so this is a big question um right I'm just like throwing that out there as a yeah I love that (laughs) this is very Pluto of you Chris (laughs) yeah right my 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 keyword for Pluto is Chris Brennan. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's see. So I see Pluto as a modifier to the rest of the planets rather than as a, a planet in and of itself. It is the access point. You know, it is the one member of the, the Kuiper belt and that whole layer of the solar system that crosses in to our little system. And so it, it's it's that gateway or access point to the the outer darkness in which the soul and other things dwell. Um, I, I see a lot of gateways with Pluto stumbling into a world you didn't know existed, a secret world, which may be secret because it's bad, or it may be just it may be hidden for other reasons in the psyche. That's you know the. All of the layers that get kind of conflated into the subconscious or the unconscious, Pluto can also be, you know, accessing a criminal underworld. Um, it can be, you know, the halls of power. Um, it's mm. it's it's access. It's things coming out of that secret world into your, you know, your sunny realm, or um, traveling from your sunny realm into whatever little little pocket dimension. Power and secrecy are certainly themes, and you, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think the the underworld symbolism um, is mm. smack on the nose over and over and over again. 
All right, that was really good, uh, but I do regret now already taking us on this digression. Uh, we can just stick because, with Chris Brennan as the keyword. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to ask you if you have any keywords, Kelly, but we can either do that or we can move on. What do you want? What do you think? I can be very brief. I mean, Austin, doing? you made a beautiful point. Yeah. I like that you almost link the underworld to an, to other world uh, because I think, and I like the idea of Pluto as a gateway because it does take you into a place either internally or into a set of circumstances that is going to be darker and more confronting and demand more from you. So very simple keywords, you know, obsession, investigation, intense. Um, there's a depth. Um, there is an introspective quality to Pluto. Um, but I also like the, uh, and I often see with clients, triggers to do with extreme wealth or power or persuasiveness coming up with Pluto, but also, you know, themes around trust and loyalty and betrayal. And I appreciate a lot of those words do cross over with maybe the Scorpio or the eighth house pattern, but they do seem relevant to Pluto too. Yeah, I, I agree with every single one of those. Those That's yeah, what definitely. I see when I look at Pluto, when I look at Pluto stuff in a person's chart by transit or natal life. Yeah. I always like. So there you um, go, Chris. We we did it quickly. Thank you. That was really good. Um, I always liked Alan White. He had this statement that Pluto makes small. It takes small things and makes them really big, and it takes big things and makes them really small. And because mm. that's to me as an archetype, that just that statement covers a lot of the things like that you see when you get like a Venus Pluto aspect, and you see somebody get getting really intensely like obsessed with a relationship and taking something very small and blowing it out of all proportion. Um, or, you know, a Mercury Pluto aspect and this sort of um, intensity, which with which they can take something mercurial and blow it into something very large. Anyway. That's a beautiful point. All right, let's get back to the forecast. So, um, you guys were saying basically that we have those few ingresses and we have the new moon at the beginning of the month, but then the big shifts don't take place until about the middle of May, right? Well, Mercury's um, ingress into um, Taurus is a, is important. Yeah, I mean, we touched on that, right? So briefly. we've got that, like that. Basically, that second that second week of the month is pretty stocked, right? We've got Mercury ingressing into Taurus, spending that time conjunct Uranus while Jupiter and Saturn, or excuse me, Jupiter and Mars make their opposition, and Venus squares the. Um, you know, the the Saturn Pluto South Node meat grinder component. And then we're in the uh, middle of the month. Okay. There we go. So mid month. Um and Venus ingresses into Taurus on May 15th. Right around the same time we get Mars departing from Gemini and moving into Cancer by the 16th, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Depending on where you are, I mean, Eastern time zone, they both happen on the 15th, but uh, 15th, 16th, depending on where you are. Okay. Yeah. It just strikes me as a real change in tone going from Venus and Mars in an air and a fire sign into an earth and water sign. It also So there's a slowing down or a deepening or a, a softening with Mars, but that's not always a good thing with Mars. And it also makes me realize too that because we have no Mars retrograde this year, every six weeks we get a different focus from Mars and we are shifting in the middle of May for the first time since oh, the end of February, early March. 
you know, we've now got a different Mars to guide us. And I mean, Austin has given us a very poetic, now world famous name for what this six week period is going to be. Uh, But it's different. I mean, it will be less frantic in that scattered, excessive mental quality of Mars in Gemini, but it will have its its own challenges for sure. Yeah. And, you know, Mars movement into Cancer puts it opposite by sign, South Node, Saturn, Pluto in the same sign as the North Node. But that doesn't really get exciting for a while. You know, there are 20 degrees between them on the 16th. And so we really see the, um, you know, we really see the, the, the Mars firing all the, all those dynamics up in June primarily. We'll see some, I think, I think we'll see, um, we'll, we'll see some, uh, some sizzle reels of, <laughs> you know, some trailers, some action, some, uh, emotively packed trailers of what those dynamics might be. Um, but, you know, the, the, that doesn't really get moving until until later. It's not just on the ingress and it's go time. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly the, the buildup starts at that point. Like this is the buildup for the summer. Yeah. Fireworks and sort of some of the, the clashes that we were anticipating with especially the Mars-Saturn and Mars-Pluto oppositions. Yeah, June-July June. yeah, or June-July parade. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mars in Cancer has much more of a moody quality. And I always find Mars in a water sign, maybe not every water sign, but I mean, maybe just Mars in Cancer. There is that idea of mood affecting motivation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is going to be maybe more of a fluctuation around when you feel inspired and you, you get things done versus feeling more if you get a bit hurt or you feel a bit flat and then just not, you know, being harder to motivate yourself uh, with Mars in Cancer. And there's a protective quality here with Mars in Cancer too that is less inclined to extend outwards and more inclined, unless maybe it's going on the attack, I guess. Um, so there is a, there could be a little bit of an internal sort of broody or reflective tone, I think. It, it's just such a big change with Venus and Mars both going from you know, hot expressive signs to cool, dare I say, introspective signs that the second half of the month feels quite different, especially in this sort of seven day period before the sun changes signs. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. a shift. Because one of the the contrasts is we're going from a, a long period of like a month or two where Mars, the primary thing it was running into was that opposition with Jupiter, but Jupiter's not stopping anything Mars is trying to do. If anything, the problem with that opposition is Jupiter's just exacerbating what Mars wants to do in the first place and giving him free run to do whatever he wants and making him much bigger in doing whatever he wants. Whereas here, once Mars goes into Cancer, it starts to build up to that opposition with Saturn yeah. and the sort of gridlock that you run into with a Mars-Saturn opposition where you have opposing forces of like you know, fire and cold that are literally just running headlong into each other. Yeah. And that, of course, exacerbated by the nodes, right? The nodes mm. complicate the territory. The One of the simplest things you could say is that the nodes make clarity difficult because the very reason we calculate nodes and what they show are when eclipses happen and eclipses are events of shadow. And shadow means not being able to see something because it's in the shadows. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the visibility around the nodes is always much trickier. Um, and so, you know, to a certain degree, it's like, oh, the last thing we need 
um, is a, a, a lack of clear visibility when we're already trying to do a Mars-Saturn uh, opposition well. But that Venus in, um, that Venus in Taurus is um, a saving grace to a certain degree, especially once it clears Uranus. It's interesting that the conjunction with Uranus is really interesting and should pop off. It should pop off Uranian, Uranian events more than any of the other previous conjunctions because Uranus in Taurus is in a Venus-ruled sign. And so yeah. it's conjoining its ruler, maximum amount of ability to just make stuff happen. Um, but then after Uranus and Venus do their thing, and Venus is just in Taurus for another 20-some degrees, then we have the, the sort of classical Venus and Taurus as a, as a stabilizing, um, luxury-enabling uh, um, you know, factor, which helps mellow, mellow down the, the ambient strife from whatever um, Mars early, uh, early in and coming up on opposition with Saturn uh, creates. Right. And notice um, right after Venus starts separating from that conjunction with Uranus, we get the full moon in Scorpio uh, on May 18th, it looks like. So there's like a culmination of events in Scorpio happening. And then just a few days after that, we get the nearly simultaneous uh, ingress of the Sun and Mercury into Gemini, where they conjoin, and we have the Mercury Kazemi at zero degrees of Gemini on May twenty first. Yes, I just remembered something on the full moon weekend. So, I that as you were saying that, Chris, I was like, oh, that's yeah, that's the big weekend in May, the May eighteenth, nineteenth, which is the Scorpio full moon and the Venus conjunct Uranus aspect. Right. Um, I'll actually be teaching in New York that weekend. I'm doing a progressions workshop for the NCGR community there, uh, which I forgot to mention earlier. Because I, I keep thinking, oh, that's right. The Scorpio full moon is in my ninth house. I'm going to be traveling to another country to teach. And uh, <laughs> like no-brainer basic timing astrology. Uh, but then the energy shifts, yeah, once we get to the 21st and the sun and Mercury almost like hold hands as they cross into Gemini. And that's a totally different quality of influences. I mean, we go from the depths of Scorpio and and then straight up to Gemini. Yeah, I really love that Sun-Mercury conjunction in Gemini. And that period with like Mercury in Gemini and then Venus in Taurus actually opens up a great period. Lisa and I just recorded the Auspicious Elections episode for this coming month yesterday and saw that like all of the great electional charts are taking place towards the end of May because you can really take advantage of um, Mercury being in Gemini and Venus being in her home sign of Taurus during the course of the latter part of the month. Yeah, I really wish Mercury wasn't combust for as long as it is in Gemini. Um, you know, it being its own sign saves some of that, but it's still not a visible Mercury. It's you know, uh, mm. and that's not a uh, that that's not saying that it can't anchor some good elections. That was just I found myself when looking at elections for that period. Just wishing, you know, we get a, get a few more degrees away from the sun, buddy. Um, <laughs> just, just a, you know, just can, can we have that too? Oh uh, yeah, it's yeah. always the picking and choosing, right? Yep. But yeah, those. I Whoa. mean, those are the best things in the sky. Absolutely, that's 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 what there is to build around. Yeah. Did Did you have an electional chart to share, Chris? Yeah, I might as well just throw it out 
now while we're talking about it. So a few days later, actually, one of the charts that we highlighted as the best chart, one of the best charts for the month of May for electional purposes is on May 25th around basically around 6 o'clock in the morning just after sunrise. So make it so that in your city, whatever your city is, just make it so that the ascendant is in Gemini, probably around 8 degrees, and you'll end up with a chart on this date that has Mercury conjunct the ascendant at 8 degrees of Gemini, the sun also in Gemini just a few degrees above the ascendant making it a day chart. Um, and then the moon on this date is in Aquarius, and it's depending on your time zone, basically in Denver and all time zones east of that, you'll be able to get the moon still applying to a sextile with Jupiter, uh, with the moon being at 21 Aquarius in the uh, ninth whole sign house, applying to a sextile with Jupiter at 21 Sagittarius in the seventh whole sign house. Um, if you're west of Denver, you may not be able to get that, but if you back this election up a day and just do May 24th, you can still get the moon applying to Jupiter. Uh, so this is a great Mercury election because it basically has Mercury ruling the Ascendant in the first house in its home sign in Gemini. It's true that it is under the beams because it's proximity to the Sun, but because it's in its own domicile that acts as a mitigating condition. Uh, Mars is no longer in Gemini, which is nice. It's moved over into Cancer, so it's no longer in the same sign as Mercury. Uh, Mercury has that opposition from Jupiter, which is helpful, and it's not quite moved too close to the square with Neptune yet, even though that is still forming. Um, let's see, it's not a good chart for financial matters because it places Mars in the second house in a day chart, uh, but it is great for all other Mercury-related activities like writing, speaking, communications, um, and other things like that. So it's also not a bad chart for seventh house matters with Jupiter in the seventh and a day chart in Sagittarius. Mm -hmm. Tenth house doesn't look too bad either. You've got angular Jupiter in Sag ruling the tenth. Yeah. So it's kind of not a bad chart for partnership related things. In Denver, I think we picked the specific times that we could make the midheaven kind of roughly configured to Venus within three mm. degrees to kind of mitigate its twelfth house position because that's the only planet that otherwise we would like to be in better shape but isn't in the twelfth there. But if you can just get the degree of an angle to be uh, aspecting Venus within three degrees, then you can kind of bring Venus out of its 12th house position a little bit. And uh, yeah, so that is the, and this is actually taking place, I think, around the time of Norwalk, right? I was just thinking, so whoever's up early on Saturday morning at Norwalk can <laughs> right. use this uh, chart, or if anyone still happens to be up from the night before. Yeah. That, that will not be me, but I don't think I'll be either up early or still up. <laughs> I'll probably be asleep. Definitely, and I've used elections like this before to start like writing projects, um, like for a like a paper or a book or even like a blog post or something like that, because uh, Mercury and Gemini is just really well suited for something like that. All right, so that's the election for this month. We've got three, actually five other elections we, that we found for May of 2019, which are in the Auspicious Elections podcast, which is available to patrons who sign up for our page on Patreon, which you can find out more information about at theastrologypodcast.com/slash subscribe. All right, so that's the election for the month. That brings us back. So we're in the lighter part of Mercury, and we are in the later part of this episode. So, what are some of the stuff? What's some of the stuff that's happening in the last part of the month that we need to hit? Um, we might as well just let give people a heads up about the Moon in Capricorn period, just because that I think every month we should be paying attention, or you people may already be paying attention to uh, 
the moon in Capricorn being especially melancholy uh, because of the Saturn South Node Pluto pileup. Okay. Yeah, I mean Mars yeah, is with all Mars of that is, having stationed recently. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying with all, especially with all of that having stationed retrograde there recently. Yeah. yeah, and so even though we don't get a you know a climax of whatever the Mars Saturn thing is um, for a while, we do have Mars and Saturn are both cardinal now, and so that means that whenever we're looking at the moon's passes through cardinal signs. We're going to be making, you know, oppositions or hard aspects to all of the malefics at once, um, which is kind of good for the benefics, right? If we're looking at um, fixed signs, the only things to aspect are Uranus and Venus. If we're looking at mutable signs, right, there's nobody who's particularly ornery, but it's, um, you know, it begins a challenging period for cardinal signs and cardinal, you know, the transiting cardinal moon. And most mm. especially for Cancer and Capricorn. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful point. And because really we will get the moon opposite Mars here early in Capricorn and then the moon slides straight into the conjunction. So it is that's a really great point, Austin, I think, just keeping your wits about you yeah. on these cardinal moon sign days. Yeah, well, and just to jump back to what you said about the, the melancholy of hitting mm. of the moon hitting Saturn-Pluto-South node, I actually had a, a friend just email me um, or message, private message me a little while ago. It was like, oh, wow, the melancholy from the moon's movement through Capricorn is real, huh? And yeah, that, you know, Saturn's melancholic. Um, whereas Mars, you know, so Saturn uh, on, a, on an emotional level, as far as emotional primary colors, um, in terms of negative emotions, Saturn is sadness or depression. And then Mars yeah. is anger, right? And so that's part of why it can be difficult when Mars and Saturn are together because it's being both angry and sad. You know, it's one thing to be angry, right? Like you can, yes. okay, take some deep breaths or whatever, but when you're angry or just be sad, but angry and sad at the same time is harder. You know, that's um, that's uh, that's like the everybody's least favorite um, uh, mix up. Or you know, mash up, as it were. I was trying to think in terms of frozen yogurt flavors being combined, <laughs> but it didn't come together. But that's where my mind went. Was like really, really awful frozen yogurt. What flavor would be? What? What would what would a satin flavor be? Well, I don't know what frozen yogurt tastes like. Sadness. Uh, uh, but like satin charcoal. Charcoal. <laughs> yeah. It would be so bland. Charcoal and gasoline. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It, but I mean. <laughs> That's we don't. Scary. We don't have to I mean, follow this this frozen yogurt metaphor. Um. No, it, I just got very curious. I'm like, but I can usually, you know, Mars. You can pick chili or something with heat as a flavor. But I was like, what flavor? I was genuinely like, I don't know what flavors would be satin. We're gonna have to have uh, people write in and, and let us know. Yeah, so, their sadness flavors. Yeah, bitter. Um, sometimes uh, cold. Not not like cool like yogurt cold, but. Um, um, the uh, astringent. Yeah, th thank you, Jack. Yes. Jack Marsh. Jack, I was looking Jack for read my astringent. Mind. I'm like, oh, astringent. Yeah, astringent. Bitter. So you can't really have ice cream because you'd have to have it without the sugar. So maybe I don't know. Could we do like star anise? And no, I don't know. Anyway. Oh, coffee. No, coffee's all gray. If this serves me coffee, I will be delighted. Coffee. I mean. It's an impact in that it energizes would be a Mars thing, but the taste of coffee is quite bitter. And it's drying. Uh, um, 
It is drying, so that works with Actually, satin. that works with both. They both dry. Yeah. So, yeah, and th- I mean, I because I did notice the moon in Capricorn period at the end of April, more so than I normally do. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I was reminding myself that Saturn had just stationed retrograde. And so I think that melancholy quality is further enhanced by the retrograde of Saturn. And then, as you said, Austin, we're now not just sad and flat, but we're also going to be angry since we have Mars in Cancer from the middle of May until early July. And, you know, it's important to notice that anger isn't always full-blown rage, right? Like irritability, you know, being irritated is, you know, is basically just like level one anger. You're like, and, you know, when you're like, things aren't going that well, and they did that, and it's super irritating, right? It's that, you know, that uh, that combination that makes those two um, challenging to deal with. Yeah, short-tempered and being being short-tempered and under pressure. Vice yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it too. So it might be a good idea to start paying attention to that sector of your chart as we get the, the buildup as soon as Mars ingresses in the middle of the month into Cancer and starts moving into that opposition very slowly with Saturn um, for some of those themes to sort of start coming up and maybe to start being a, a little more more cautious in that area of your life. Yeah, and I think one of you mentioned this that the flip side of that is it, it things get a little bit better for Jupiter as soon as Mars moves out of Gemini yeah. because Jupiter doesn't is not dealing with, you know, the Saturn problems because it's in a blind spot and Jupiter now no no longer has that thorn in its side kind of energy of Mars being in the sign opposite. Yeah, and that's actually one of the last aspects I see of the month is Mercury opposing Jupiter around May 30th or 31st from 20 Gemini to 20 Sagittarius. Yes. And that's that's basically how we close off the month. Yeah. The only other aspect that I might throw in just to get your guys' take on it, there is a trine from Venus to Saturn. Mm, right. With a lot of dignity because obviously Venus is in her home sign, Saturn is in his home sign. I, I don't know. I'm kind of like that for a bit of stabilizing kind of grounded energy. I think so. I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you guys agreed or had a different take. Yeah, definitely a trine between those two more almost like quasi-earthy planets taking place in Earth signs. Like that's a very grounded and stabilizing trine, and it nicely helps to liven up and smooth out Saturn a little bit yeah. in a way that it's otherwise not a lot of this time in Capricorn as it's retrograde conjunct Pluto in the South Node. Yeah, I, I would also look at it that way primarily is that, that that's help with the Saturn stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, that is, we didn't harp on it a lot, but Venus in Taurus is one of the little blessings from the sky this month of May. And we have almost four weeks of her uh, I, I'm actually excited to to have her go over Uranus because I'm interested to see how the Uranus stuff develops or emerges with the Venus-Uranus conjunction. I'm interested to see news headlines when that comes out, but also the personal life developments. Uh, but yeah, I that Venus trines Saturn very end of the month. Um, the moon is actually in Taurus on the same day with Uranus, so that mm. might uh, take off. I don't know whether we get more Uranus or more Taurus, but it, it there's a little bit of stability coming in there. It's the week after Norwax, so I sort of think I'll be home in my garden and I'll be honoring Venus there. You no, know, it's like the day after Norwax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that. It's gonna yeah. It's yeah, I guess it's the couple days um home. Yeah, I like that. 
And one of the reasons, um, you know, when I, when I talk about the, you know, the Mars, the malefic party, um, and, you know, I say, I, I've never said, oh, it begins in May as soon as Mars moves into Taurus, uh, or no, sorry, mo- Mars that. moves into um, uh, yeah. Cancer, is because, um, you know, if we're looking for where the trouble is, I, I would say look, wait until Venus moves out of Taurus, because Venus in Taurus is just going to have this, it's just going to be in the sky. It's going to rise once a day. It's going to culminate once a day. And so we have this stabilizing, cohering power. And then when Venus moves into Gemini, we lose that and we lose any configuration to the difficulty axis here. And that's where the, you know, the the malefic party will get to shine all on its own. Yeah. So enjoy Venus and Taurus while we have. Yeah. And stabilize things, you know. Yeah. That's an opportunity to stabilize things and to firm things up before some of the tumultuousness of uh, the next month and a half. Yep. Cool. cool. Good advice. All right. Nice. Well, I think that brings us pretty much to the end. That the, those are the last alignments of the month. And at that point, we're getting into June and other stuff that we are going to have to wait. Yeah, because look at that. Mer- Mercury changes signs really fast afterwards. Then the moon goes in uh, very early in June. And then we start getting the build up to all of that. Yeah. It, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a very clear shift in that direction. One thing, uh, two things really quick, just to go, just to hit again that happened in May, that happened in May. One, the opposition between Mercury and Jupiter um, also has a a partner in Neptune. Neptune is tightly square both of them while that occurs. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. you know, there, there's a, there's a note of confusion or lack of clarity uh, or you know, or just very big dreaming um, that can't be ignored. There, you know, um, it might be possible to get excited about ideas that aren't going to happen then, uh, or ideas that are going to take a lot of energy to actually make happen. You know, Neptune gives you that that biggest of all possible circles and possibilities, um, you know, which doesn't always work out. And then just one note on that, that full moon in Scorpio with Venus conjunct Uranus, that could be a little crazy. Oh, it's going to be It's going to be a little crazy. Um, we didn't, we didn't give that one the crazy stamp. Um, it could be crazy good with that Venus Uranus for some people is going to pop out some crazy good stuff. It's also going to pop out some crazy bad stuff and it's also going to just pop out some crazy stuff. Um, but you know, um, crazy tending in many different directions full moon yeah it's a pretty dramatic weekend for sure so make sure people have that uh, marked in their diary and it's right after that shift of mars into cancer as well so that's like an element of it that's tinging things as well Mm -hmm. of course right because mars rules scorpio and so it's a it's a and that's actually a mutual reception now that you pointed Mm -hmm. out right yeah Good times. All right, guys. And the Algol activation. So yeah, take care. Be safe. Don't lose your head. Yeah, or maybe stow it somewhere safe where you can retrieve, where you know you'll put it somewhere where you're going to remember where you hit it so you can recover it intact (laughs) later. Right. Beautiful. Um, And if you're in New York, I hope to see you in person that weekend and we can uh, lose our heads in a good way together. What are the dates on that again? 
It's uh, May 18. I'm t- it's just a full day workshop on the Saturday. I think it's 10 till 4.30 or 5 through the NCGR. And if you Google uh, Kelly Sertes New York Astrology, I think it comes right up or if you put NCGR in there. Um, and I can get the link actually if we want that in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. So just search for the New York NCGR chapter and then you'll be able to find out more information about it. Okay, cool. Uh, so you'll be there. We're going to all be at Norwalk. Uh, we're going to yes. do that Q&A. Everybody be sure to send us questions. Send us good questions. Like Think of the best question you could possibly ask us that would make for a good discussion topic about astrology or something related to astrology, uh, and we will answer some of the best ones we get. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm actually looking forward to seeing both of you. I've been hanging out with friends here from You're the You're getting east- a tease, a taste. Yeah. Uh, well, hanging out with Kenneth and Sam Reynolds this week reminded me of what it's like to be at a conference and like having the new studio and being able to have conversations here in person has reminded me of like what it's actually like hanging out with astrologers in person and like talking and getting into crazy conversations. So that's going to be a really fun week that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. No, so we'll see each other in person probably before we talk online again. Yeah, it's like unless we pre-record. I'm not sure what we're doing scheduling with June, but. We'll see each other again. Yeah, like three and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, All right. Cool, guys. Well, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to everything. Is there anything else we need to mention really quickly before we wrap up? Do you got anything, Austin? Yeah, just you've mentioned. um, Quick reminder um, talk on the Jupiter Saturn cycle online on May 5th. Tickets for As Above 2019 Portland event with me and Gordon White on September 14th. 85% 85% sold out. It's only been up for a little over a week. If you're going to come, you got to get in now. And um, the Sphere and Sundry Venus Exaltation Series that I elected goes live on May 2nd. And come see us at Norwalk. Actually, no more tickets available. So we'll see you yeah. all at well, Norwalk. You've already got yours. <laughs> yeah. So Norwalk is sold out. Laura, the organizer, did tell me that there is a waiting list. So if anybody's really wanting to get into Norwalk, there's some off chance that you might be able to get a ticket. Uh, if you go to the Norwalk Northwest Astrology Conference website, which I think is like norwalk.net or something like that, um, you can find Laura's email address. And she said just to email her to be put on the waiting list in case some tickets free up because sometimes people cancel at the last minute. And then there's extra tickets floating around. So otherwise, uh, we look forward to seeing everybody at Norwalk here in a few weeks. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it for this episode. Yeah, we'll see them at the live podcast episode right. recording. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be so much fun. And Cam White, Cameron White's going to be there. He's going to help us set up. Uh, last time we were there, we got lucky, and your husband was there, Kelly, and he like saved us. In setting he up at the last out. minute. I think Tony helped out too. Yeah. yeah. Cam is amazing. Don't let he and I behind the bar because we will have everyone in a very merry mood. Yeah, that's what I heard. And I think Cam is also <laughs> going to try to, he's like a DJ and he's going to try to do the dance party at Norwalk. Um, there's going to be so many new people that are having their first conferences. Do you guys have any, any advice for astrologers at their first conference? Oh, I would say get into the bookstore early because like there's going to be a huge, amazing bookstore with thousands of astrology books and lots of titles you've never seen. But sometimes like if you hit the bookstore early, you can get some some of the best ones right at the top before they sell out. Totally. Uh, I would say um, 
pace yourself and sometimes the so there are great conversations that happen between the lectures in the hallways so um, make a little bit of room for that if you can sorry oh, I was to say um crew up you know if you get a having a few conference buddies um is a lot of fun you can go around and do stuff together and see lectures together and you know um you know squad or crew up uh, you'll enjoy it yeah Oh, yeah. And try to make the effort. Kelly, you and I met actually, and every, everything that's happened in our friendship over the past decade happened because you came up to me at Norwalk in New Orleans in, in 2012 and just like started chatting me up. UAC? Yeah. yeah. So that's actually my best piece of advice to anybody going to the conference is make the effort to like reach out to other people. Or if you see somebody that seems like they're not connecting with other people, like go up to them and introduce yourself. Uh, and that sort of networking is really important at conferences, and I hope everybody does that because that's part of what helps to ensure that everybody has a good time. Is just like meeting other astrologers, and it may be more or less difficult for different people. So uh, try to make make the effort. And sometimes, if you do, it can lead to crazy things, like you know Austin and Kelly and I doing this conference now or doing this podcast now for years. Yeah, and as an addendum to my advice, like you know, if you've got a couple of people you're hanging out with. And you see somebody lonely, like break him along, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a really good point that everything that we do together now is because we met at a conference. Yeah. And and Austin, you and I met because I invited you out to the first Project Hindsight conference, mm -hmm. just having exchanged a few messages with you on MySpace back in the day. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. everybody try to do that, try to make an effort, and hopefully especially for the podcast listeners, we're hoping that can be a good event at the start of the conference to introduce other people that listen to the podcast. And right off the bat, you know that you have something that you share in common. So uh, that's why I'm looking forward to it. All right, guys, that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to our audience. We had like 30 or 40 people in here for the live recording of this. We appreciate all your comments. Um, sorry if we couldn't get to all of them. I was trying to keep track as we go. But uh, yeah, thanks for joining us for that. Thanks to all the patrons who support the podcast um, and who have supported us through 200 episodes. I did the 200th episode uh, this month. I am now moved into the new studio and we are starting to do in-person interviews. So there should be more of that in the future. All right. So thanks everyone for, for listening and we will see you next time. Bye everyone.